Alright, we are back and we are still talking about the history of animation. I'm Will. I'm Adric. And this is On Twos. So we dropped off last time with uh, Gertie the Dinosaur. Finished off on our good girl Gertie. Love you, Gertie. Everyone loves. Yep. I'm very glad that we got her into the art for the series. It makes me really happy. Yeah, there's yeah. a bunch of Easter eggs in there. Leave us a comment on Twitter, I guess. I don't know. Uh, sure. <laughs> of um, where uh, what what all what all the Easter eggs are in there, and uh, once again, big thank you to Bernadette Meeker for our our thumbnail art. So we're starting off with cell animation. Ba-da-ba. Yep, so Cell Animation, invented in 1915 by Earl Hurd and John Bray. Earl Uh, Hurd. In this style of animation, you are drawing on celluloid to separate the foreground and the background. Uh, Celluloid, that makes sense. Yeah. Um. So think of when you were a kid and you were in school and the teacher would bring up a projector. Um, Think about it like if your teacher was fucking cool and (laughs) they they did that. But it was like, yo, here's a background and here's this little fucking mouse that I drew. Look at him dancing. Look at him go. Yeah. So it's kind of like that. But. You just have your different cells. Uh, You layer the cells together, take a picture, move probably just your top cell, and then take another picture and keep on going. Ad infinitum until you've made, similar to stop motion, a, a series of images that are overlapping on top of each other that in sequence now form a moving picture. Yep. And yeah, that's a lot of the, well, early cartoons basically from 1915 to 1990 were done with this style. And another thing that was invented in 1915 that really, I I think it's had an Un, like an unspeakable amount of unspeakable. influence on the industry yeah um but it's not so apparent immediately uh the rotoscope is mm. invented in 1915 by max fleischer who fleischer's gonna come up repeatedly here because he just kept inventing stuff and making cartoons on top of everything else. Yeah. So Max Fleischer invented this thing. It's you, uh, you make a film basically initially, uh, his, his first one was out of the ink. Well, which is starring Coco, the clown, which is his brother, Dave, (laughs) who he filmed, (laughs) just like dancing around and shit. And then you take a film projector, project it onto a glass pane. And then you have your sheet that you're drawing on, on top of that glass so that you can see the entire figure that you're 
not like directly recreating but recreating the essence of so you can get a much more realistic uh movement than you would if you were to just be guessing at how Mm. you know how humans move around (laughs) that makes sense like um i'd never known about the development of rotoscope rotoscope is one of those things that you like experience first and like get a sense of what it is before you know how it's done and you're like oh Mm -hmm. they they just traced people that makes sense without thinking too much about what that entails exactly and um yeah about like hey someone had to think to do that yeah exactly and i feel like a lot of um the animation things that we talk about here are like that you know i was i was kind of digging on on physicists in the first episode about how uh how quote unquote little it took to be a physicist but man it's so easy to take these things for granted in retrospect that oh yeah each of these things is a tiny step so uh notable uses of rotoscope we have obviously that out of the inkwell cartoon uh, with Coco the clown, which is basically like, oh, uh, it's uh, Max Fleischer and he's drawing a thing and he drops his ink and then a clown comes out and starts dancing around. It's very surreal. Uh, they're pretty entertaining. Happens to the um, best of us. Yep. Oh, I, I drop ink all over the place. And it My always turns into clowns. Mm-hmm. You didn't so draw any of those. Clowns. Yeah, I got I stomp them. I've got like a big fly swatter for them. <laughs> uh, then also, uh, Snow White is. I think if you've seen a something where people are like, "Here's how rotoscoping works," you've most likely seen that scene from Snow White where she's dancing, and like they just filmed filmed a woman dancing. And then rotoscoped that to do Snow White. And then they used the same footage for uh, Maid Marian in Robin Hood later. Oh, so it's like this. There's a ton yeah. of reused animation like that. And it, in, in a totally yeah. reasonable way. Like, there's another. Yeah, there's another reused one uh, between Winnie the Pooh and Jungle Book. Yeah, there's quite a bit of reused Jungle Book both both reused from the original animation and then reused in like Robin Hood and um uh and then yeah going backwards originally from Winnie the Pooh or some others there's a, a couple other films that it's used from and then Yeah and, and yeah the thing to know there is that they're not reusing the animation they're reusing the rotoscope footage exactly so they're just like redrawing these same motions by a human actor, but in different styles. Exactly. Which is kind of cool. Makes sense. Yeah. Why would you why would you film film the same thing again? And if not just paint on top of it, it'll be slightly different. But especially at the time when you couldn't um, you know, look up both and run them both on the internet simultaneously together. Oh nobody, right. Nobody's gonna know. <laughs> no one knows. <laughs> Kids are stupid. Um <laughs> We all were. So, moving forward, in 1917, we get the first cutout animation. Uh, This is called El Apostol by Quirino Cristiani. Uh, He also made the first animated sound film. Um, You telling me the sound is animated? 
Yeah. <laughs> you can see the music. Dun, dun, dun. Do, do, do. Uh, anyway, so, and yeah, that was one of those things that like I found for him, but later we get into how Steamboat Willie had the first synchronized sound. So I'm not sure exactly what that means. And I didn't have time to look that film up. That makes sense. A lot of this is like going deep, deep, deep into Wikipedia holes and seeing <laughs> what you can drag out. So cutout animation is basically 2D stop motion where you use a bunch of cutouts and you just move your little cutout piece of paper and take a picture, move the cutout, take a picture. Think South Park. Right. Which the right. first couple episodes were legitimately done this way, right? The first short, the ah, uh, that's right. like Satan having uh, it, it was something where Satan was fighting Jesus, or was it Jesus fighting uh, Santa? I don't, I don't know. Remember. There's there's like that first version of it that you can find that was uh, just going around that they had made in. Uh, in art school yeah. or in film school. Uh, but other notable uses of uh, cutout animation, you have those like Monty Python shorts. Mm-hmm. From the intro se- sequence um, before each episode of Monty Python's Flying Circus. Yep. Yeah. There, there was like that and there were interstitials that they did with it too. And like I was saying earlier, this is kind of how early flash animation was done Mm -hmm. uh where it was the same thing but digital which obviously once we get to to next week then we're gonna go to a lot of that where it's just (laughs) like this is the same thing but we're able to do it digitally now yeah uh next up we have rubber hose style animation which uh it was very popular in the 1920s. And then the 2020s. I yeah. guess it was more like 2018. Well, yeah, it it's hard to say. I mean, so Cuphead is rubber hose style animation. I think that that's undeniable. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people put the CalArt style as rubber hose when it's it, it's like not quite. Did you say CalArt? Like California yeah. arts, yeah, yeah, Cal art style, like um, like Steven Universe mm-hmm. or ba- the anything where they draw the characters with that bean mouth. <laughs> Good old bean mouth. It it's very hard to explain, but the moment that you see it, you yeah. see it all over the place. Exactly, y'all y'all know y'all know the bean mouth, even if you don't know the bean mouth. mm Hmm. So with rubber hose style, their uh, limbs are moving around like a rubber hose. So there aren't really joints in the limbs. And this makes it like easier to draw and you don't have to have that rotoscoped footage. Right. Because you can just sort of move the hands around. um, Sort of. uh, It reminds me of in games, there's this concept of inverse kinematics where the the placement of of each of your like uh, points of articulation can be freely independent of uh, and just like you stick them on to where they need to go and then you draw the the stuff that needs to then match up um, 
uh, in between. And so you attach the hand to where it needs to go. You move the hand around, and then you just bring yeah, this tube along for the draw ride. Draw the arm to match. Yeah. Uh, so the most popular version, or the most popular initial rubber hose style animation, was Felix the Cat, mm-hmm. uh, which was Fleischer. Um. And Fleischer Studio did a lot of this, but so did Disney, which brings us to probably the most popular rubber hose style animated character of all time. You're not going to believe who it is. (laughs) Yeah. Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Love you, Oswald. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, y'all remember Uh, Oswald, right? Everyone remembers Oswald. We all played Epic Mickey. Oh my gosh. That, that game where they brought back Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. <laughs> Do you ever wonder what it would be like if a if a different random animal was the one that like became unbelievably popular for some reason? Yeah, I there is we've talked about the whole thing with anthropomorphic animals being yeah. you know, a useful thing in animation to just give you a sense of what they are and i guess like with a mouse you're thinking oh they're they're kind of mischievous they're just kind of trying to to eke out a living they're also cute you know Mm -hmm. but yeah like i don't know what if it had been like a horse maybe I'm surprised it wasn't giving all of given all of the rest of the history of animation. <laughs> yeah, like because with horses you're thinking uh, hard hard working. What, I guess. What do people think about horses? I don't think about horses that often. Well, you should. Yeah, my bad. I'm yeah. sorry, America. So, Steamboat Willie. <laughs> so, Steamboat Willie. This is the Steamboat one you probably Willie all remember. Starring mickey mouse and minnie mouse um it's the first uh cartoon with synchronized sound which was uh very relevant to you know the cartoon itself which is Mm -hmm. basically mickey and minnie uh abusing animals to make music that's exactly right i re-watched it last night and i was genuinely surprised to see mickey mouse grabbing a cat by the tail and swinging it around (laughs) it's just like jesus they had to show off the cool cool sounds they could make and there was no other way to do so (laughs) which is a cat going (laughs) it's a very accurate rendition thank you will yeah um why 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 do you think um mickey in particular took off like was it was it the fact that it was this revolutionary um sound combined with visuals that was was so revolutionary or do you think that there was an aspect to it other than that i think it's it's that it's also that you had this like mischievous character you know you you had like an actual character in mickey yeah where it does seem like he's he's just trying to like you know have fun while he's at his job mhm and like and 
you know, we love Gertie, but it. Gertie does not have the same degree of personality as as Mickey did in this first one. Yeah, nor Minnie. Like this is this is one of the the first times where there was like an arc rather than just like a, a presentation. Yeah, and I guess there's also that you have this character now and you can just throw them into different situations just mm-hmm. ad infinitum. Which is what people did for the rest of time. <laughs> it's yeah, just like, we I, have this character, what are we going to do with it? I don't know. Uh, put it, throw put it him around. in fucking Final Fantasy. That's right. <laughs> and everyone rejoiced. And everyone loves it. <laughs> did you did you so, play Kingdom Hearts when you were a kid? I played the first Kingdom Hearts like the moment that it came out. It was a revolutionary PS2 game that I had no it's, context for understanding because I had no idea what Final Fantasy was when I played it. So I've had a, a theory going on now for a little while that I think... I'm not sure if the concept for it originally came from House of Mouse, which was a cartoon that came out like a few years before okay. Kingdom Hearts. And it was just like Mickey owns a nightclub and fucking like uh, Jafar and Ursula just like show up there to drink and watch shows. Interesting. I had not heard of this. Yeah. So it's like, is is that where this honestly just bizarre crossover universe came from (laughs) who we will never find out those doors have been closed for a long time yeah no one will ever know and they're They're not about to open them tomorrow yeah they're locked in the disney vault (laughs) along with um what's his name from square from square yeah from squaresoft who uh, uh who worked on that sorry i don't know enough about video games (laughs) <laughs> this is not a video game podcast and i apologize for bringing them up i'm sorry to yes. my viewers i'm sorry to the listeners mm-hmm. um 10 lashes 10 <laughs> lashes for bringing up video games this is not a video game podcast the video game podcast is dead <laughs> happy e3 yeah happy e3 everyone that's when we happen to be recording this um yeah. anyway so anyway Next big innovation, Technicolor. Uh, So this was 1932. The first Technicolor cartoon uh, was Flowers and Trees, also done by Disney, which is a plot line. It's two trees. Uh, The guy tree seems to like the girl tree. Then there's this big ugly tree that tries to steal the girl tree girl tree doesn't like that neither does the guy tree guy tree beats up the ugly tree ugly tree gets mad about it starts a forest fire and then oh my god everyone gets together and puts out the forest fire that is quite the plot it's a lot of like old cartoon plots is like oh i have a girlfriend this jackass is trying to like drag my girlfriend off like a fucking caveman (laughs) it's it's wild in retrospect also like um how many stories are could be simplified down to that exact structure and how that was just like extremely accepted as a uh 
a narrative it, i don't know it's just it, it's every popeye cartoon ever right <sighs> aside from i think popeye versus sinbad the sailor <laughs> which i'm sure but, was not much better no not really uh so Technicolor is a three-color process that uses a split-cube prism to expose three independent strips of film that would capture either red, green, or blue. Right, and they would often... There's a, there's a number of ways of doing this, um, and there's like some truly wild cameras that Disney made through the years uh, uh, yeah. to, to make this process work, um, including some that were then used to shoot um, live-action films as well, because like, that is how color film in this case is done is like through um, prisms and filters that you could then mm -hmm. recombine to make a single image. It's a, it's a very, very wild process. It, yeah. Everything was so complicated before computers. Just astonishingly. Sorry there. Just wanted to verify when Popeye meets Sinbad comes out because that's going to, <laughs> that's critical. Uh, well, it is it is relevant to the next thing that we're talking about, which is the multiplane camera. There you go. Uh, so that was invented in 1933 by former Walt Disney Studios animator slash director Oob Iwerks, which God, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I think it's but Ube. This is, it's not Ube because it's, it's spelled Ube. U B. It is a two-letter name. Oh. Yeah. Like, this This guy would fuck up a lot of online forms. All right. Um, Vocabulary today. Learn faster, better. How to pronounce oob. Oob. Ub. Ub. <laughs> That's so much worse. <laughs> what's his, so, what's uh, his last name? Iwerks. I-W-E-R-K-S. Wow. Okay, I found a video yeah. on how to pronounce Ub Iwerks. Ub Iwerks. Ubby Works. Ub Iwerks. It's Ub Iwerks. Ub Iwerks. Yeah, All you, right. you got it in one. Oh, no, I was saying Oob. Oh. But... Never mind. I take back. You're a fool. Anyway, he invented the first multiplane camera using movable layers of flat artwork in front of a horizontal camera. Uh, and he put it together using parts from an old Chevy. That's amazing. We love old Chevys in this house. Um, oh, everyone loves old Chevys. Oh, this is interesting. It's actually, his his name was spelled U-B-B-E, but also went by oh. Oob. So I think it was Ube, and and it was then um, shortened. Ubby. It was Ubby. Wow. Ubby. That's so cool. I love Ubby's this person's name. name. <laughs> anyway i'm sorry I, I i'm very into this person's name yeah so the way that a multi-plane camera works is that you'll have um you'll have your background plane and then your mid plane and your foreground plane and you can actually have them separated not quite like uh you would have with traditional cell animation where they're just like sitting right on top of one another mm -hmm. you actually have them separated so there's this depth of field and the reason that i was looking up uh popeye cartoons is because fleischer used this for a lot of popeye cartoons 
what they would do is build a whole like miniatures city or miniature dungeon or whatever for their background and then just move the camera along Mm -hmm. and change out their cells Uh, so you have this like very lush looking background behind your characters you could spend way more time and not worry about the fact that any motion is going to immediately disrupt it it's a huge huge benefit to your your production um yeah really quite a quite a cool technological innovation and you could do later things down the line where you start to add like parallax and um Mm -hmm. other additional like basically film styles and and uh and that's a very powerful um very powerful tool well and speaking of like you know later on down the line with the multi-plane camera uh Disney had a CNC multi-plane camera made so that they could do Snow White. And CNC meaning... Um, Computer numerical control. Yeah. So that you could recreate the motion and do very complicated layered motion. And so like the intro sequence of... Um, uh, I'm blanking on the name immediately. Uh, uh has this like very beautiful cascade where you get carried through a you forest mean like snow white or yeah. ba- bambi, bambi has too. a lot of this kind of stuff uh but it also lets you put one of those like glass frames in front of your cell so that you can have the illusion of your character like walking behind a tree mm-hmm. in a scene which uh you know blue minds back in the day <laughs> Blam. <laughs> so then 1933, we got the invention of Gaspar Color uh, by Dr. Bella Gaspar. And this was basically a way to get all of your uh, different colors on a single strip of film. Which um, is notable, as we just previously discussed, where previously you'd need to shoot it, split the light develop three different pieces of film and then recombine those re-exposing it. And it was like a very, very complicated, expensive time intensive process. Mm -hmm. And one of the best uh, instances of this that I could find was a a music video by a guy called Len Lai called rainbow dance where he, um, the animation is like, it's kind of like rotoscoping, but it's actually direct animation on the film. Oh, interesting. Where... Yeah. Um, it's really cool. It's on YouTube. Uh, fun stuff. So then we have stop motion with actual models. Uh, this was first done in 1935 in the film The New Gulliver it's uh soviet and it used uh basically puppet animation there are like a lot of uh matryoshka dolls and stuff like that (laughs) dancing around and shit um yeah it's an interesting film and you know that's stop motion just getting started where you make your models you take a picture you move them and then repeat that process a lot of the 
a lot of the stuff that you'll think of as like claymation is uh, done with plasticine clay. Mm-hmm. You have obviously all the uh, Ardman films. Um, the God damn it. Wallace and Gromit. Yeah. Is what Ardman oh, does. Wallace and Gromit is I forgot to talk about while well, both Wallace and Gromit and my own personal experience with claymation. Um, but like those are both very, very important in my life. Um Wallace and Gromit and then I would what I would do is I would have like either a, a sheet of plywood or something similar I would paint a backdrop onto that and then use um colored plastic plasticine or oil-based clays and um, make uh, essentially also very similar to flash animation style two-dimensional mostly uh short animations using a um a tape camera where I would just like Press yep. the record button, press it again, press the record button, press it again, and just like yep. use that to take snapshots and recording wow, directly that, onto film. Yeah. That's just some great kid stuff. It's such a good, such a good exercise and really, really like you get an instant response because you can just like play back the tape and see it in yeah. real time. It's such a cool feeling to do something like that where you spend so much time on this and then you can look back at it and it's like, maybe it's only a few seconds, but it's also like, I made this. I did this. Would a depressed person make this? Yeah. <laughs> um, as far as other uh, like prominent stop motion things, uh, Rankin and Bass, obviously. The... Mm-hmm. Uh, they made all those old Christmas specials, uh, the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Santa Claus is Coming to Town, A Year Without a Santa Claus. Oh, I didn't know about that one. Uh, oh, yeah. Rankin and Bass has like, there's this whole catalog of just like weird Christmas based shit that they made. There's. I think a year without a Santa Claus is the one with heat miser and cold miser. <laughs> the um, Rudolph is the one that I've watched more than any. Oh, and Jack Frost too is made by them, right? Oh yeah. Jack Frost uh, is lit. Yeah. Santa Claus is coming to town a year without a Santa Claus. The little drummer boy. <laughs> Here comes Peter Cottontail. Oh, mad monster party. What is that? It's yeah, it it's like the universal monsters in a stop motion animation Wild. done by Rankin and Bass. Yeah. <laughs> we need to do that one at some point. That's, we really do. Yeah. That's a good question because like most of the stuff that we've been watching uh, is animation as sort of um either cell or you know what have you, but this is uh claymation i think i think we need to do maybe a month of claymation or something oh god yeah there's and there's a lot of like we we could definitely find a lot of interesting stop motion done throughout the years because yeah it is depending on uh, everything depends on production quality but in a general sense it's cheaper right i mean the it's and it's also easier to do as an individual um mm-hmm. obviously the again the quality can vary dr- drastically and you can spend an inordinate amount of time see like Coraline and things like that but um yeah. otherwise you can like kind of do whatever 
whatever and do it to the the degree that you want and uh oh hell while we're talking about stop motion animation the nightmare before christmas oh duh yeah yeah the thing that like introduced the concept to a whole nother generation Mm -hmm. the thing that populates the entire hot topic store to this day yep all right so that's stop motion the next notable thing that i have is the disney animators strike which was in 1941 <laughs> we so, love a strike oh yeah we we love labor movements so a bunch of animators were just pissed off that they weren't getting paid shit so and you know being worked like dogs so what this what what comes from this is the UPA style, which basically some of the people left uh, left Disney and started a company called United Productions of America. And hmm. they made a whole lot of um, like informational, uh, like just stuff that would be like, oh, don't... Uh, fucking fall asleep in the bathtub or you'll die or whatever like <laughs> don't like make toast and take a bath at the same time just a lot of bath based information yeah, yeah, yeah. like and, and it's very simple art style they use a lot of smear frames uh just to save money uh smear frames being where rather than having an in-between between two keyframes you just kind of have it like smear yeah you just kind of have them melded vaguely like what happens when you do um the fucking frame interpolation yeah but still done more artistically because it's an actual human being making decisions imagine that uh the notable the notable examples of upa would be mr magoo uh, which is about an old man with bad glasses who uh, just gets into a lot of shenanigans because he can't see. Um, Rocky and Bullwinkle is very archetypical of that UPA style. Mm-hmm. And then it has made a comeback in recent years. Uh, Powerpuff Girls is done in the UPA style. Oh, I never thought about that, but totally. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, the backgrounds are very just like geometric mm-hmm. this is also like um the the original pokemon cartoons and uh dragon ball z are also kind of shot this way at times uh like the same um the same ethos behind it i guess but stylistically what's, yeah what's the distinction Oh, like stylistically, those, sure. Those big round heads mm-hmm. and shit like that, I think, are more archetypical of the UPA style. And the backgrounds that are just like geometry. Mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's I, I get the more, distinction now. That's helpful. Yeah. And that uh, leads us into limited animation, uh, which kind of starts around um, 1957 with things like 
like Scooby-Doo and a lot of those early Hanna-Barbera cartoons. So limited animation is using a lot of cycles, smear frames, and even stuff like suggestion of action to cheaply crank out a lot of cartoons. For suggestion of action, think like two cars coming into a head-on collision, and then instead of doing the head-on collision, they would just do a few frames where it's like red, orange, red, orange. Yeah, just to insinuate a clash. Yeah, and this, it it let Hanna-Barbera just very cheaply crank out a whole bunch of just just cartoons like a lot of the stuff that i grew up watching you know like hong kong fooey and the hair bear bunch and just like just random shit that they came up with and were like well we can make you know five walk cycles and a few backgrounds and we got it and then the other thing being that you could then reuse that walk cycle across you know just change the background swap it out yeah, you reuse what exactly your what we're wa- saying, but yeah, you're reusing a lot of cells to make these early cartoons, uh, which brings us to the first primetime cartoon, The Flintstones from 1960, which it's it's weird to think about how much primetime cartoons and even stuff like The Simpsons and all that owe to the Flintstones being this cartoon that was like not only for kids, also for adults mm-hmm. and being very popular and just an extant force in media at the time. Those fucking vitamins still exist. There's still fruity pebbles. <laughs> like, I don't think there's been a Flintstones cartoon in a long time, but that you still see them on store shelves and i don't know the i don't remember the flintstones ever being that interesting but it it is it reminds me of like one of those show about nothing style things where like a lot of people had like at least a tiny bit to connect to it and so it oh, yeah. stayed in the in like cultural lexicon for a very long time well, like, i guess so many of the episodes so many of the early episodes were just like my boss is coming to dinner and we're having issues it was just like those yeah. very basic sitcom plots and then as it dragged on you got shit like the great gazoo and just like <laughs> just adding in a fucking space alien for because you need shit to do but i would say on on that note, there was a recent uh, Flintstones comic book that's... Look it up quick. Artist Steve Pug and Mark Russell writing. It was a 12-issue thing done by DC when they were, like, kind of rebooting a whole bunch of Hanna-Barbera stuff. And I stan this comic like nobody's business. It is so good. They take this whole concept of, you know, modern conveniences kind of working their way into prehistoric (laughs) life and expand on it. And it's amazing. And the art is fantastic. You're going to cry about a vacuum cleaner. (laughs) 
is the vacuum cleaner also like um a, a tiny marsupial yeah uh, it's a elephant amazing yeah it it has a very fun relationship with a bowling ball oh my god so next thing i've got in this write-up uh yellow submarine which was oh, I, wow i have a very, very vivid memory of watching this as a kid and being like frightened by it it's a weird cartoon uh it's done in 1968 obviously for the beatles um and it's it was a hit obviously because it's the beatles at the height of their power um <laughs> and it had so many different styles of animation in it like there's there's cell animation there's rotoscoping there's direct animation on film um where you just take the uh take the frames and draw stuff on them uh it's it's really an amazing film and it kind of you know opened people up to what you can do with uh with film animation and like yeah tell me tell me more about that how how did this feel different than than some of the the previous styles what did what did they what did they make use of so mostly it's the fact that they melded a whole bunch of different styles a lot of the old stuff you know you'd see like snow white it's just cell animation that's the whole thing is cell animation front to back but with uh with this then they're doing like very direct rotoscoping for some sections of it uh yeah it's just mixing up all of those styles that i was talking about to make this very surreal cartoon um which was also a music video for the beatles and it you know obviously it has cultural significance by way of being attached to the biggest band of all time. Right. It also had like, um, I don't know, an extremely complex storyline <laughs> compared to a lot of the stuff that previously. Uh, Too complex. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I honestly can't remember all the plot points, but I do remember being confused by it. And there are those blue meanies. The blue meanies, which are and... literally what they're called, right? Yes. Yeah, that is the name of them. <laughs> and they're like vaguely fascist. Yeah. And and the Beatles, I think, kick their asses. Makes sense. Pretty sure. There's like some time travel or vague or something. I don't know. I don't know. I, it's one of those that I haven't watched in forever. Yeah, like 15 years or something ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, next thing we've got is deregulation so one of the first big acts carried out by reagan when he became president in 1981 was appointing mark fowler as the new head of the federal commission communications commission the fcc and one of the first things fowler did was deregulate everything that he possibly could because reagan right that's what he did so there were previously regulations that said like, yeah, you can't just make a cartoon to try to sell toys. 
Like you can't make a children's cartoon where the entire goal is to get these children to beg their mom and dad for a fucking chunk of plastic. (laughs) Yeah, that would be just absurd. Like you can't do that. Yeah, that would be silly to do. So anyway, then you get G.I. Joe, you get Transformers, you get, uh, like, just an enormous list of cartoons. And this is also when we started getting stuff pulled in from uh, Japan to America. Like, we were talking about Voltron when we were doing the Little Prince episode. Mm -hmm. That was pulled over because, obviously, they have the toys as well. You could sell this. (laughs) yeah like transformers was made to sell toys that were made in japan um and yeah it it led to this whole market driven style of cartoons where gi joe was like a master class in how to sell toys Mm -hmm. because every single episode it's like oh Here's this new character. What's your name? I'm Firehose. I love shooting fire water out of my hose. Nope, fire. And you can, yeah, you can buy this hose from the fucking hardware store. It, yeah, it was just shit like that constantly. And <laughs> I had a lot of GI Joes when I was a kid. I don't know how you, but um, I was a was very much a Transformers kid. Like, like that was, that oh, was yeah, yeah, I had quite a few of those too. I remember I was when I was little, there was um an uncle who had a bunch of the like very old transformers, and I was in awe of their existence. They were so cool, yeah, when I think about this age uh, and like the toys that I owned that I owned directly because of cartoons, it was g i Joe, it was Transformers, and it was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, definitely a TMNT. And yeah. And then, it, like, yeah, the transition from, like, toy into video game, when that started, I, shoot, I brought up video games again, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's not allowed. <laughs> there are no Sonic cartoons. We, we, don't, <laughs> we don't recognize the existence of Sonic cartoons. Uh, we don't recognize the existence of the Super Mario Brothers Super Show. Uh, we don't swing our arms from side to side. We don't uh go and do the mario on this podcast adric i'm so sorry i'll never do the mario again you're not you're not allowed to (laughs) i'll be watching i I always just think of that um did i ever send you that clip from it it's a live action clip so i'm also you know going into forbidden territory here uh but the um the clip where it sounds like Mario's saying, fuck you, Luigi. <laughs> I also remember this vividly. <laughs> it's so good. I'm not going to do a Mario voice because I was I was explicitly told to not. Yeah, because you are not Captain Lou Albano. That's a fact. Um, But yeah, they're just the quantity of things that come up from the And we've talked about a number of that, like the... Uh, the Mortal Kombat cartoon, the Darkstalkers cartoon, like all of these things just being made to sell a secondary product. And obviously there are advertisements in old cartoons and old cartoon, like a lot of old cartoons had cigarette advertisements in them. Mm-hmm. It, I 
I don't know if you did you watch the uh, Flintstones cigarette cartoons? No, I have not seen this. Oh man, there are all these old Winston cigarette cartoons uh, that the Flintstones did. And let me see, uh, Johnny Quest. I believe they were selling Lucky Strikes. Oh my god. Okay. I'm, yeah. I've got one of these pulled up now. Yeah, watch this if you get a chance. This is wild. It yeah, and just watching from a modern perspective and seeing fucking Fred Flintstone ditching his yard work, going to the backyard with fucking Barney. Barney to smoke pulls a open his his giant shirt and yeah. then a very photorealist pulls a very photorealistic cigarette out. <laughs> And then they puff on their cigarettes and they say Winston's taste good like a cigarette should. Wow. This is deranged. But yeah, I'm I'm not sure at what point the regulations went into place to actually stop <laughs> that shit so that then they could be deregulated. Cause <sighs> that's really sad. Yeah, I, I think it was just like specifically marketing to children wasn't allowed and they considered selling cigarettes not be not marketing to children or something like that we can look into this more deeply the next time that we do a cartoon that was yielded directly from deregulation Mm -hmm. you know when we do like strawberry shortcake or some shit like that can't wait Uh, (laughs) it's it's gonna be so good we're gonna be advertised to and we're gonna wind up buying a bunch of toys so next we have creator-driven animation uh which this the first uh instance of it that i've that i was able to find was 1987's new mighty mouse and this was basically pulling away from the more standardized style that uh something like you know gi joe and transformers have a very similar looking style to one another Mm -hmm. and like all those upa styles like all of those are very very similar and this kind of lets you pull into more unique styles that are very different from one another one of the archetypical like there's obviously new mighty mouse but also like ren and stimpy angry beavers Mm -hmm. like all the cartoons that you were watching when you were a kid where they have very distinct styles from one another. Much more expressive animation. Right, right. And you could bring in elements of different animation. Like I was talking earlier, you know, the uh, Powerpuff Girls using UPA style. You could just do stuff like that. So I thought that we'd finish off this episode by talking a little bit about what I see as kind of the culmination of Hmm. hand-drawn 2d animation i feel like i know where you're going with this yeah it's akira the one the only Um, yeah what a i I know this is like said superfluously a bunch of times but what a masterpiece like it's gosh darn it's so good and okay so it was at the time the most expensive anime film that had ever been made. Oh, man. Uh, now you got was... me curious as to what, well, first off, what it cost, and then also what surpassed it. 
uh, $5.5 million. And this is in 1988. So that probably, um, you keep going, I'll do the calculation right now, but it's probably double, uh, Kiki's delivery service went past it the next year. Um, (laughs) just like that. But I think Akira is just a more interesting, like Kiki's delivery service is fantastic. It's, It's, it's like one of my favorite movies, but Akira has a lot more interesting and like weird esoteric shit about it to talk about. <laughs> Seriously. Um, for yeah. those curious in the audience in 1988, $5.5 million is equivalent to 12.5 million today. Ooh, I can't imagine anyone look up the budget me. of the emoji movie and prepare to be fucking disappointed. It's going to hurt me. Oh, it's so bad. It's going to be like 500 million or some garbage. <laughs> it sucks. Um, fifty million dollars. You could have made hell yeah. You could have made two made four. Akiras. Four, wait, four Akiras. You could have made four, four Akiras, Akiras, and instead yep. you made this bullshit. God uh, it's it. awesome. Um, anyway, yeah, Kiki's delivery service very good. Yeah. What were you gonna say about? Oh, it? just just the budget was six point nine million compared to to five point five. Um, yeah, and one of the big things that Akira was like made to do was showcase laser disc technology oh my and, god i hadn't yeah. did not post that ever oh like a whole bunch of other different technologies a bunch of companies that were involved in the production of this movie went out of business during <laughs> the production of this movie because they sunk so much money into this movie like um do you have any, do you know any of the companies off the top of your, were they like smaller uh, like, production companies yeah, that were assisting laser di- laser disc was one of them yeah. uh laser disc that was just like bound to happen that's just nature doing its thing yeah it's they were they were too big too big to fail just kidding it's laser disc no no i mean like the physical disc was too big <laughs> <laughs> You couldn't store them or <laughs> transport them easily. Yeah, they unlike um, uh, like uh, music records, um, could scratch and shatter. Mm-hmm. Our favorite, our favorite uh, physical media storage problems, and obviously much more easily than with a CD or a DVD. Right, because you got all that surface big. area. Yeah. Um. So how? I, very quickly, we don't have to spend a ton of time on this, but. How was Akira made to showcase Laserdisc? Uh, just by having absolutely gorgeous hand-drawn 2D animation. Got it. So it was like one of those things like that you you couldn't get this fidelity anywhere else. You need Laserdisc. Right. right. It's them just being uh, like, look at the fucking things that we drew. Look at you. all the like nice cutouts and stuff like that that yeah. they were using for the for the lights oh also uh the sound you know obviously the soundtrack is amazing yeah uh independently magnificent yeah the band that was doing it reprogrammed all of their synthesizers just for this it has that even mean just uh you gotta switch around all the beep boops to beep bops you know what i mean yeah they just like (laughs) didn't like exactly the way that their synthesizers sounded so they went into the programming of the, I assume, microprocessors in the synthesizers and 
That's fucked with them, so they make different noises. Because another thing that they wanted was suboral tones, because they felt as though that was going to be felt when you're listening to it, sure, even if you can't actually hear it. <laughs> I do love the levels of pretension that are sort of wrapped up in any like truly magnificent art production. I feel oh, like you yeah. need to push past what like is contained within reality, so that all the stuff that you include that is part of reality is like truly transformative because like a lot of these things you they have to be unreasonable people to make what they made exactly like you have to turn it up to 11 even if 11 doesn't mean anything yeah and so we've talked a lot about it before even introducing and hopefully you've heard of this movie before and if you haven't just like the first thing you should do is go watch it yeah right away watch Um, i think it's on netflix is it that's great Um, pretty sure it's one of the few movies that i own on dvd because it's like, I, I want to always have access to a copy of this, regardless of what I'm doing or where I am. I don't mm. know if I kept the DVD around when I purged a bunch of DVDs. As you should back. have. Physical media is poison. Um, yeah. Except for this one copy of Akira. Um, mm-hmm. This sort of goes back to our conversation. Oh, I, I meant to I meant to continue introducing it. So it is a, um, what is it, 1988 film? Yep. Um, based in... Uh, based on a manga um, that uh, is like twice as long as this already masterpiece also Mm -hmm. independently hand-drawn like it is every version of this thing is is unbelievable Um, Katsuhiro Otomo is the um, the director and author of the original manga Um, it is a like a, a story about technology and the human like humanity as a concept and the um the like collapse of those two things in on each other um there's a a lot of stuff in it that is that is like um frighten frighteningly like relevant today um it feels like Uh, a like a bit yeah i mean they sure do talked about the uh 2020 tokyo olympics (laughs) and that uh, that's a thing that uh comes up a number of times specifically it's apocalyptic like falling apart (laughs) yeah that delays the olympics yeah one of the other things that i really like about this movie is that it is self-contained like it it is just singularly uh Otomo actually talked to alejandro yodorowsky when he was making it and what they came up with was, I'm going to decide on where I want like the conclusion of the movie to be, and then only introduce any elements that are necessary to have that conclusion. So obviously, you know, the manga goes into a whole lot of other stuff, but he, you know, he was not was beholden be. to his darlings, yeah. you know? That's really smart, honestly. And it's really... yeah. It's a strong film, and like if they had tried to include every single thing that happened in the manga, it would be ridiculous. It'd be gibberish. It'd be nonsense, right? It, be like, it already is kind of gibberish. Yeah, like, honestly. Uh, it's very hard to completely understand what's going on. Um, and we've spent all this time talking about it, and it's hard not to wax poetic about this thing that I, I love so dearly. But we haven't spent any time talking about the actual animation itself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the an- It's almost... It's either almost entirely or entirely done on ones. I I 
I think it's not. Like, I think that's one of the things that's like kind of a common misconception about it. But I think it switches much more than you think it does between um, on twos and on ones. Um, and specifically, mm. what I've what I've seen from a lot of it is that depending on what is happening in the scene, there are certain parts of the scene that will be animated on ones or like, like um, we we talked a little bit about this, but they have the the light cutouts for the the um. So they're one of the elements in the in the movie is that they're it's like teenagers racing street bikes, real and cool so motorcycles. They're the coolest shit. Motorcycle on the clowns. It's there's nothing cooler than the motorcycle Everyone, scenes in this. I mean that one slide. Oh my god! This the motorcycle slide in Akira. You can just find compilations of like they redid it in everything. It's just a shot that has been redone because the framing is so good. Like, it's such a heroic pose and everything. It's magnificent, yeah. It's so good. So all the lights, um, and you were sort of referencing this earlier, all the lights that are like the brake lights streaking across the screen are are done as like cutouts that are then illuminated physically with lights. Um, Yeah, from behind. From behind. Those light cutouts are animated often on ones where the... But then the actual like bikes and stuff will be animated on twos. Like oh. they'll hmm. they'll yeah they'll mix and match depending on the actual thing. And then there's like action scenes that are animated on ones. But then you know they're just chilling and talking and it's animated on twos. It's fine. Um, and this sort of goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning. Is that like when a director is using these things well and using them like effectively, you've got no fucking idea what it's animated on. You just know it looks good. And right. uh, uh, anim- animating something on ones is not this like mythical thing that will make um, will make something better, except when it really does. And this director is doing it on purpose in a specific scene, like for a reason. And I, I think this is actually one of the best indications of that, that it's not always necessary. But when it is, goddamn. Yeah, like a lot of the stuff at the end is blatantly on ones because you do yeah. want this like big flowing nightmare baby oh my uh, god like nightmare baby full of machines <laughs> which if you haven't uh, seen this this probably sounds hilarious right now it's but it's awesome it's stunning it is like yeah it is like the rebirth of humanity and it's mm-hmm. like recombination with machines at the same time it's astonishingly cool um, yeah there's a lot of you know elements in this that are man versus machine um you know progress versus uh non not progress <laughs> stagnation <laughs> yeah yeah and then like um uh oh 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 um all of the the like painting of the things um they're like hand painted cells that's the other big like mm-hmm. um like notable aspect about the production of Akira is that Somebody was physically sitting down and painting, 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 painting. Yeah, painting, and painting, that painting. that's another reason that I that I say like this is kind of the culmination of that mm-hmm. hand painted cells. They also um, for a lot of the night scenes they couldn't find the colors that they wanted, so they had to get colors made, oh, which I didn't know that. doesn't like it doesn't sound like it'd be that complicated until you consider the quantity of frames and the quantity of cells that they're 
painting for these so you're just buying these paints in 55 gallon drums and if you don't get them all at the same time then they're going to be like slightly different oh man yeah you'll get that like hanna barbera effect right where like between and when what will's talking about is when you're looking at two scenes and you get like a cut between two scenes and the blue shifts slightly more green or slightly Mm -hmm. more gray or slightly more orange like to avoid that is like nearly impossible like especially with um yeah back in the day when you're actually painting stuff right there's just it's a physical media there's a ton of variance i can't eyedropper Mm -hmm. tool and get the exact same color code you have to get your eyedropper out your literal eyedropper eyedropper and put that onto the piece of paper you let it dry 20 minutes later you look and you see that it's the same color and then it's not and you scream (laughs) And you go back and repaint all your old ones. Right. <laughs> um, so anyway, maybe we'll do an Akira episode at some point because, like, really, I could talk about that thing forever. Yeah, same. It's one of those movies that I tend to rewatch, like, at least once a year. Yeah, exactly. And and it holds up, like, every Shit single holds time. holds up. Biker clowns hold up. But that's the end of our episode on uh cell animation yeah thanks for uh thanks for sticking through a little bit longer one but man when it comes to the history of animation hey, we are still just learned. barely skimming the surface and yeah we oh yeah in fact we educated you so like you're welcome i guess yeah you you learned so much in this episode i hope go back there there'll be a test at the end yeah that's right maybe listen to it again mm-hmm. one or two or ten more times Put it on yeah. while you sleep. Delete it every time and re re-download it. Um, if you're listening to this all the way to the end, you're one of like four people at this point. So like really mm-hmm. anything you could do to give, your- give yourself a little pat on the back. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening, y'all. And big thanks to the composer of our theme, Miles Morkery, and to Bernadette Meeker, the artist for our thumbnail. We're on Pod on Twitter.com. Our website is on twos.club. You're the best. Good night. 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 Good night.